Tonight on The Readout. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. And there's something dangerous happening in America now. There's an extremist movement that does not share the basic beliefs in our democracy. The MAGA movement. President Biden is set to deliver a dire new warning about Donald Trump as Trump late today asked the U.S. Supreme Court to keep him on the ballot in Colorado. Also tonight, the outrage following the resignation of Dr. Claudine Gay at Harvard. The result of right wing attacks on DEI, women, people of color, academia, all of it. Plus, yet another Biden administration official has just announced his resignation over the administration's, quote, blind eye to the atrocities in Gaza. That official, Tarek Habash, joins me tonight in his first TV interview. Well, we begin tonight with the three-year anniversary of the greatest assault on American democracy in modern times, the January 6th insurrection. We're just about three days away, again, from that anniversary. And the key architects of that extensive plan, including members of Congress, remain at large. For those of you who may have forgotten, roughly a dozen members of Congress met with Donald Trump at the White House after his loss and worked with his allies to implement a plan to overturn the 2020 presidential election. The plan, cooked up by Peter Navarro and Steve Bannon, was dubbed the Green Bay Sweep. Part of the plan was pressuring Attorney General Bill Barr to investigate false claims of voter fraud. Barr claimed those claims, called those claims BS and idiotic and resigned two weeks after publicly stating that there were no credible claims of fraud. That's where Republican Congressman Scott Perry jumps into the fray. It was Perry who took it upon himself to find someone within the administration who was willing to do what Barr refused to namely to lie for the president. And Perry had just the man, Jeffrey Clark, a former assistant U.S. attorney general in the environmental division who was more than willing to disregard his constitutional oath. Clark first came to Trump's attention after Congressman Perry recommended him to Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows. And now, like Meadows, Clark is indicted in Georgia for his role in the election scheme. He's also one of the six unnamed co-conspirators in Jack Smith's indictment of Donald Trump. Cassidy Hutchinson has mentioned Perry and his role. She did so in her key, her eyewitness testimony um, to what happened behind the scenes at the White House in the lead up to January 6th. And here's what she told a local Pennsylvania affiliate about their congressman. I think it is also important for central Pennsylvanians to know that Scott Perry was at the central, was, was central to the planning of January 6th and central to the planning of operating the Justice Department officials to execute a plan that Donald Trump wanted. And what Donald Trump wanted was to essentially shred the Constitution in any way that he could to stay in power. And Scott Perry has a lot of information about that. In her congressional testimony, Hutchinson alleged that Congressman Perry was one of several lawmakers who sought a pardon from Trump before he left office. We also learned from publicly released text messages seized from Perry's phone in connection to Jack Smith's investigation that Perry not only introduced Trump to Clark, but he also held meetings with people like Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, Jenna Ellis and others. 
After failing to get Clark installed at the DOJ, Perry began implementing a second part of the plan, which centered on members of Congress delaying the vote on January 6th by objecting to the certification. Part of that was helping facilitate the delivery of a false slate of electors to Vice President Mike Pence. And here's what's ironic. Perry was reelected the same day Donald Trump lost. Oddly enough, he never claimed his election was rigged, only Trump's, meaning he expected people to believe that only the top line on the ballot was rigged, but no other race listed below it on the same form. And Perry's 100 percent faith in his election continues. He is running again to represent Pennsylvania's 10th congressional district. But that's becoming a bit more complicated. Yesterday, a former Democratic congressional candidate in the district filed a lawsuit calling for Perry to be removed from the 2024 ballot due to the 14th Amendment's insurrection clause, citing his active role in trying to undermine the 2020 results. Frankly, it's pretty stunning that it has taken this long, given the long trail of publicly available evidence of Perry's role in actively undermining the election. But he's hardly alone. In this day and age, in the Republican Party, accountability and the Constitution come second to Trump, which explains why every single member of the House Republican leadership has endorsed the coup president, a man who was ordered by the Colorado Supreme Court and Maine's top election official to be removed from the ballot because of his role in overturning the election and inciting the January 6th insurrection. Late today, the former president asked the Supreme Court to reverse Colorado's decision using some stunning legal arguments about what constitutes insurrection and the role of the presidency. Which brings us to Joe Biden, the current president, who is just as unpopular as a man who incited an insurrection. Biden and Vice President Harris will launch their re-election campaign in earnest later this week. Biden will hold his first real campaign event on January 6th near Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, where George Washington and the Continental Army spent a bleak winter nearly 250 years ago. There, he will lay out how modern-day America could face its own bleak winter, according to his campaign manager. The message is clear, and it is simple. We are running a campaign like the fate of our democracy depends on it, because it does. Joining me now is Benjamin Wittes, editor-in-chief of Lawfare and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and Cornell Belcher, Democratic pollster and strategist, and MSNBC political analyst. Thank you both for being here, Ben. Um, thanks you for being here in person. I want to start with you, because Donald Trump— his attempts to stay in power depend on a reading of the 14th Amendment that excludes only one officer from the oath that he took and accountability to it. And that would be the president of the United States. Does that make sense to you? So it certainly doesn't make logical sense. Uh, there is a, a non-trivial legal argument that it's what the Constitution says. I think it's not the better legal argument on that point, but there is an argument to be made. Uh, as a as a logical matter, it makes no sense at all. Right. The 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 drafters of the Fourteenth Amendment were concerned to keep Confederate uh, 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 actors, soldiers, and politicians out of power in the new regime, and uh, it would have been. Very odd for them to exclude Jefferson Davis right. from that or to say that, say, you know, Robert E. Lee or some Confederate private uh, could run for president of the United States. That would be a very odd thing for them to do. Yeah. Um, now, um, ironically, because of this quirk about the presidency uh, in relation to this office, uh, Scott Perry 
actually, it, it's more clear that somebody, <laughs> uh, like if Scott Perry uh, participate, you know, depending on how broadly you construe the insurrection, it's more clear that this covers Scott Perry than it is yes. that it covers Donald Trump. Oh, it's very clear. And it's ironic that he would think that elections are meaningful when he wants to run and therefore he wants to run again. Let me just stay with you for just one moment. This is uh, in the, tr- the Trump appeal to the Supreme Court. Here is what he is saying. First, the president is not an officer of the United States. He took a different oath than the one set forth in Section 3, and the presidency is not an office under the United States. Therefore, President Trump falls outside the scope of Section 3. Second, the Colorado Supreme Court erred in how it described President Trump's role in the events of January 6, 2021. It was not insurrection, and Trump in no way engaged in insurrection. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, so the the first part of that is this technical argument that it kind of doesn't apply to the president. And it, it's, a, it's a tortured a uh, complicated legal argument that has some uh, support in, in certain academic circles. Uh, it's not a trivial argument. The Supreme Court will take it seriously. Now, the second part of it, uh, which is that Trump didn't engage in insurrection, actually has two parts, right? One is, is January 6th an insurrection within the meaning of the insurrection clause? And the second is, tr- did Trump engage in it, right? He right. didn't storm the Capitol himself. He's not... Uh, I think the argument that uh, Donald Trump, ironically, the, the sillier of the arguments <laughs> is actually the better one. Yeah. So the, the argument that this there's a technical mismatch between the officer language, the mm-hmm. office language and the nature of the presidency is for obscure legal reasons, actually a better argument yeah. than the argument that just is quite ridiculous, actually, yeah. that January 6th is not an insurrection yeah. or that President Trump didn't meaningfully engage in it. Right. And so I think look for that weird, tortured argument mm-hmm. to the extent the Supreme Court wants to evade this problem and yeah. get rid of the Colorado Supreme Court. Look for that weird, tortured argument about officer actually to have more legs. It's less em- it's less embarrassing because it's, that's techni- what they do. it's technical. And it, well, there's also the fun part about Section 3 saying, or supported insurrection. And there have been a bunch of people convicted from the Insurrection Act, and they have all cited Donald Trump as the person they were doing it for. So it's, that makes it a little dip- more difficult for him as well. Uh, Cornell, I want to go to you, and not to argue the legal part of it, but Donald Trump is also saying, his, his people are saying that the reason that he shouldn't be tried— is that it would pose a threat to other presidents. This is what they said. The 234-year unbroken tradition of not prosecuting presidents for official acts, despite vociferous calls to do so from across the political spectrum, provides powerful evidence of it. The likelihood of mushrooming politically motivated prosecutions in future cycles of recrimination are far more menacing and crippling to the presidency than the threat of civil liability. Now, by the way, Nixon was going to be prosecuted so he, if he hadn't resigned. But here is Donald Trump. He's saying that you can't prosecute me because then it will mean that maybe p- future presidents will be prosecuted. Roll it. Donald Trump in July. When I get back in office, I will appoint a real special prosecutor to investigate every detail of the Biden crime family of corruption. Out of respect for the office of president, I would never be talking this way. But once they do what they did to me and to you by doing what they did so corrupt, I said, now that gloves are off from that standpoint. So essentially, he's promising to do what he's saying in his legal argument is the threat of of prosecuting. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, Joy, if you step back and look at this as, as a bigger picture, I, you know, again, thank you for not uh, for allowing me to, to weigh in on the legal stuff. But let me <laughs> weigh in on the, on, the on, the on the political stuff. Look, you know, Joy, to a, to a great extent, this election and the future of our country is going to depend on uh, people who look like you and women voters all across this country. And think about this. Think about the sort of Trump dominating the conversation and his grievance dominating the conversation. And it's all focused on Trump and what's best for Trump. And if you're that mom sitting at the table in the suburbs of Philadelphia or the suburbs of Atlanta, right, or the suburbs of, of Michigan, who are largely going to decide how this country moves forward. And you're thinking, how does this help me pay health insurance? You know, who's worried about her daughter and, and her daughter's ability to, to dictate what happens to her body? Who's worried about, quite frankly, uh, you know, rising prices and, 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 and safety issues? How is this conversation that's completely dominant on, on Trump and his grievances, how do they connect and speak to that, to that, to that mom um, who's going to determine the direction of this country? I think I, I have, from a political standpoint, it boggles my mind. I understand how it feeds their base, but Joy, mm -hmm. I would, I would, I would tell you this. I, I think they're going to have a hard time taking back women voters and particularly, uh, you know, women voters in the suburbs who have swung back and forth over the last decade. I think they're going to have a heart and you've seen the suburbs move more Democrat. And this is why, because it's a politics of grievance and it does not mm -hmm. at all speak to the concerns of those women voters out there who are going to determine the direction of this country. Very quickly, we don't have much time, but let me ask you each of the same question. So then are, is your advice that it is wise for Biden to focus on regular politics, what you just described as the kitchen table politics versus making a strong argument on democracy, which is a stronger argument? No, because everything else falls under democracy. You know, you cannot have lower health care premiums. You cannot have safer, safer streets if democracy fails. And particularly, Joy, if you were a black woman, the idea that democracy is going to fail and the rights that you've been struggling to fight yeah. for are going to go away? Yeah. No. no, same thing to you, Ben. Yeah, so I would just say uh, you got to do both. Uh, eventually, if you, if you say the word democracy too many times, people's eyes will glaze over. Right. If you don't say it at all, yeah. if you don't remind people what the stakes are this year, yeah. that this is the year that we go into the year as a democracy, and it's a real question whether we come sure. out as a democracy, For sure. then you have not done your job as a candidate to remind people that, you know, what, what this election is really yeah. about. So I'd say do both. Yeah, all right. Well, we will see if uh, Joe Biden takes both of your advice. Benjamin Wittes, Cornell Belcher. Thank you both very much. Up next on The Readout, from conservative attacks on women's reproductive rights to the coordinated offensive aimed at driving Harvard's Claudine Gay out of academia, the in-your-face resurgence of the right-wing war to cancel the 20th century and all of its progress for anyone and everyone who's not a straight, white, right-wing Christian man. On The Readout, continues after this. Okay, guys, we need to talk about Dr. Claudine Gay, the now former president of Harvard University. She was one of three university presidents, all women, mind you, who participated in a gotcha Republican hearing in the House last month that was designed not to illuminate anything about campus anti-Semitism, as Republicans claimed, but rather to put on display for the MAGA base 
the right's hatred of diversity, equity, and inclusion. I mean, they really hate diversity, which, of course, is the product of the 20th century they hate so much. So everything they do is about removing diversity. The mere presence of anyone who isn't white or male from spaces they think are reserved for white men drives them nuts. And in the wake of that hearing, the right-wing anti-DEI brigade got part of what they wanted. Days later, University of Pennsylvania President Elizabeth McGill announced she was stepping down. But the two others, Claudine Gay and MIT President Sally Kornbluth, remained. So naturally, Claudine Gay, the only black woman on the target list, became the focal point of a legion of mediocre men whose mission is to eradicate diverse people from education, from kindergarten through Ph.D. These men accused Gay of plagiarism. But first, some facts are in order. Harvard University itself never accused Claudine Gay, who got her Ph.D. there, of plagiarism. Nor did they conclude that any issues with her academic citations even amounted to misconduct. As the AP correctly notes, the outrage came not from her academic peers, but rather from her political foes led by conservatives who put her career under intense scrutiny. And the accusations of plagiarism basically came from one right-wing anti-DEI activist in particular, who faithful readers will remember from this show as the architect of the right's war on critical race theory. Good old Christopher Rufo, a Harvard wannabe and fake intellectual who's perfected a grift of ratcheting up anger about things that make middleweight white dudes like himself, Tucker Carlson and their ilk, very, very angry. You know, things like not being president of Harvard or even getting into Harvard as a student, both of which Claudine Gay has done and Christopher Rufo has not. It is worth noting that he didn't just wage a war against Claudine Gay. He telegraphed every step of what he was really trying to destroy and how he was going to do it. A month before the sham congressional hearing, he tweeted about how to fix academia and said, quote, abolish DEI bureaucracies and punish universities that discriminate on the basis of race. He later claimed that Claudine Gay, quote, quietly built a diversity empire overseeing a racist admissions program, a sprawling DEI bureaucracy, and an effort to dename buildings and reduce the visual presence of white men on campus. The next day, he straight up admitted that he launched the story of plagiarism accusations in order to topple her. And ultimately, his grifty crusade was successful. Claudine Gay resigned saying it was in the best interest of Harvard not to focus on any individual. Meanwhile, Rufo is out there gloating about his transparent victory. He told Politico, I've run the same playbook on critical race theory, on gender ideology, on DEI bureaucracy. This is a universal strategy that can be applied by the right to most issues. And now everyone on the right is high-fiving each other over the successful execution of his plan which far from being brilliant or clever, merely requires the other side, and yes, that includes the media, to be hypersensitive easy marks. And it is important to remember that Claudine Gay's resignation is not an individual story. The attack on her is a symbol of a greater war against the progress of the 20th century, which these men are determined to repeal. It's not just undoing Black educational and business progress and banning accurate 
black history and the boogeyman critical race theory. They want to force women and people of color back into their place, too. Back to the kitchen and the birthing bed, presumably serving and obeying, just like the bad old days that were only good for people like Christopher. Case in point, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton's victory in court Tuesday. The far-right Fifth Circuit Federal Court of Appeals has ruled that Texas can ban life-saving emergency abortions and let women die, despite federal guidance requiring hospitals to provide stabilizing care. Paxton has sued the Biden administration over the guidance. There's also the case of Brittany Watts, a black woman in Ohio who miscarried a non-viable pregnancy. A grand jury is now considering whether to indict her under a weaponized interpretation of a state law that prohibits abuse of a corpse. Whether you're a black woman in academia or a pregnant white woman in Texas, the message to you is clear. Know your place. And it's not just right-wing men or even older people. Thanks to the Tucker Carlson effect, it's conservative young folks, too. They're being fed a lie that that is the idea of freedom, that if you choose to have a life married to a man, you choose to stay home and have children, that you are being oppressed when really we were created to do so. Feminism is this direct punch against masculinity and the male figure in society. Once they got that equality, they stopped wanting to be equal to men and wanted to start being superior to men. The Lord created us for two different roles and therefore I feel that men are meant to have that role in which they lead us in not just in our household but in our faith and just in our country. Uh Uh-huh. Well, if that's the case, dear, you might be surprised to learn that the third highest ranking Republican in the House of Representatives is in fact a woman. But at least that woman is doing her bit to help out her brethren on the anti-DEI brigade. Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, a Harvard graduate, led the bogus questioning at that sham hearing last month, claiming credit for Claudine Gay's exit. Late today, Dr. Gay published an op-ed in The New York Times responding to all of this. And after the break, we will tell you what she had to say about the success of the anti-DEI bullying campaign. Tonight, Harvard University's former president is speaking out about the right-wing crusade that led to her resignation. In a new op-ed in the New York Times, Claudine Gay writes that what happened happened at Harvard is bigger than her. Quote, the campaign against me was about more than one university and one leader. This was merely a single skirmish in a broader war to unravel public faith in pillars of American society. She adds, it is not lost on me that I make an ideal canvas for projecting every anxiety about the generational and demographic changes unfolding on American campuses. A black woman selected to lead a storied institution. Joining me now is Khalil Gibran Mohammed, professor of history, race and public policy and director of the Institutional Anti-Racism and Accountability Project at the Harvard Kennedy School. And Aaron Haynes, editor-at-large at the 19th and an MSNBC political contributor. Thank you both for being here. Um, it is good to see you, Khalil Gibran Mohammed. It's been a long time, and I appreciate you for uh, accepting our invitation. Um, what has been the reaction on the campus to um, Dr. Gay's resignation? 
Well, unfortunately, campus is still closed, but uh, from what I've read in the Harvard Crimson, uh, there are mixed responses. Uh, there are a number of students, some of whom are Jewish identified, celebrating this resignation, um, achieving what they and their supporters have been calling for. And there are a number of uh, faculty in and around Boston who identify as Black people and Black women uh, who see this as an outrage, as do I. Let me let me go to you, Erin, because you wrote a really great piece about this for the 19th. And, and, and you talk about the fact, first of all, that she is now the shortest tenured president at Harvard. She only served for six months, six months. So for Christopher Rufo say she built a DEI sort of monstrosity and, and conspiracy. He, she did that in six months. So she must be pretty amazing. Uh, he's also described uh, pushing her out as getting a scalp. Um, what do you make of this campaign, which definitely felt like it was bigger than her, but also about her and her identity? Well, I mean, there is nothing else to make of it, Joy, except what what uh, Dr. Gay herself said. Uh, she, you know, black women are the ideal canvas for exactly these kinds of attacks, which uh, I wrote in my column. And thank you so much for mentioning it as an affirmative reaction to, uh, you know, the DEI efforts led largely by black women and, and that are being opposed by white, mostly white, mostly male gatekeepers who you know, want to hold on to control of power over ideas in this country. And let's go and look at just the demographics right now at Harvard University, which is, you know, a very old school. I mean, it might be the oldest university in the country. It is now 40.8 percent white, 29.9 percent Asian-American, despite Mr. Blum claiming Asian-Americans are being discriminated against at places like Harvard. He named Harvard in his lawsuit to get rid of affirmative action. 15.3 percent African-American, which is not far from the demographics of black folks in this country. 11.3 percent Latino, 2.2 percent Native American, 0.5 percent Native Hawaiian. It feels like that is what folks are really, really mad about. There's a guy named Bill Ackman uh, who claims that the Harvard president was hired because of DEI, writing on Twitter. He's been going off on Twitter, celebrating her exit. It is also not good for those awarded the office of president who find themselves in a role they likely would not have obtained were it not for a fat finger on the scale. Your thoughts? Well, listen, Ackman has been crystal clear, as have been the Republican congressional leaders uh, who staged the witch hunt that took place on December 5th. And their real target is DEI, is equity, is the attempt in this country finally to reckon with a history that Harvard itself has been a market maker in producing scientific racism. It has been a market maker in defining who belongs on college campuses. And that is not meant to be a smear of my university. That is the finding of a Harvard legacy of slavery report that it released two years ago. So this was finally a moment in Harvard's nearly 400 year history to come to terms with its past and to take a leadership position in the future in terms of writing the balance of history and making good on the promise of equal opportunity uh, for everyone. That's where we were headed. And Ackman released in a statement today that it wasn't anti-Semitism after all that he was most concerned about. What he was most concerned about was, he said, DEI, that it was at root the problem of positioning oppressors and oppressed. And apparently people like me who teach a class called Race and Racism in the Making of the U.S. as a Global Power, a class that was cited by Virginia Fox when she opened this December 5th a testimony or hearing as a prime example of institutional anti-Semitism, is the real target of this witch hunt. And they are not going to stop. 
Exactly. And, you know, Erin, in her piece, in her uh, New York Times op-ed, Claudine Gay, Dr. Gay, points out that it is not lost on her that her scholarship, which is now being so derided, really is about the advancement of minority folks, the significance of minority office holding in American politics. That's actually what her scholarship is about. And, and it seems to me that what's being sort of displayed here is an open contempt for black progress, for female progress, for women's liberation, for women being able to control their own bodies, another slavery-rooted institution in the United States. They want back the pre-20th century. And contempt for black excellence while we're at it, Joy. I mean, the bottom line is these are people who do not think that, that black people, and especially black women, could have possibly earned you know, any of, of the accomplishments that they have gotten without affirmative action. And, and do not deserve to be in the places and spaces uh, that they are pioneering in institutions across the country. Uh, Dr. Gay was correct that this is not about this is not about anti-Semitism or affirmative action, and that this is just the beginning of this campaign for folks who are looking to dismantle DEI on the other side of, of a racial reckoning. Uh, you know that, that they absolutely are responding to with a parallel reckoning of their own. And, and, you know, just to make it clear that it is a planned attack, this is, uh, you know, in addition to using the word scalped, uh, Ben Collins tweeted about Rufo. If you're a mainstream outlet and you're being gamed this easily by a guy who was laying out, laying out his playbook days or months in advance, maybe the problem isn't the right wing grifters. Maybe the problem is you. Um, among the fellow grifters, Mr. Ackman is now targeting Sally Kornbluth at MIT. Khalil Gibran Mohammed, this is not going to stop, it seems to me, until there are no more women, no more people of color, no more people that these men view as unacceptable because they are too modern um, in their demographics to be in the leadership in any way in academia. Do you agree? I think that's part of it. But I do want to throw a little bit of caution on this point, because I think that Ackman and others are smart enough to recruit some women of color to stand in as the evidence that this is not about race, but about qualifications. Let's not forget that Herschel Walker was positioned as the senatorial candidate for the Republican Party. And while that is a laughing matter, it isn't a laughing matter. It shows you how nakedly they will put Black people as ventriloquists for fascist ideas in front of the American public as if we're dumb enough to believe that Herschel Walker was fit for office, which he was not. So so we have to be mindful that some people of color are going to be positioned to stand in uh, in the next round of whatever they yep. have in mind for us. I give you Clarence Thomas, <laughs> <laughs> Professor Khalil Gibran Mohammed, Aaron Haynes. Thank you very much. And still ahead. Another Biden administration official resigns in protest of U.S. policies toward Israel and Gaza. Former Department of Education official Tarek Habash, who tenured his, tendered his, reservation, his resignation just a few hours ago, joins me next. The Israel-Hamas war is setting President Biden at odds with American voters, his own supporters, and members of his own administration. Late today, Tarek Habash, a first-generation Palestinian-American and Biden administration political appointee at the Department of Education, resigned over Biden's Gaza strategy. In his resignation letter to Sec Education Secretary Miguel Cardona, Habash wrote, quote, the actions of the Biden-Harris administration have put millions of innocent lives in danger. 
most immediately for the 2.3 million Palestinian civilians living in Gaza who remain under continuous assault and ethnic cleansing by the Israeli government. Therefore, I must resign. I cannot stay silent as this administration turns a blind eye to the atrocities committed against innocent Palestinian lives in what leading human rights experts have called a genocidal campaign by the Israeli government. And joining me now for his first television interview since resigning late, to, late today is Tarek Habash, now a former Department of Education Special Assistant. Tarek, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So you started out on the Biden campaign as an idealist. Yeah. Um, what was the final straw in saying, I can't stay here anymore? You know, Joy, I worked on the administration's agenda for the last three years. I uh, volunteered on the campaign, helping shape the education policy agenda, and we've done a lot of really great work. Um, unfortunately, all of that great work has been completely overshadowed because of the president's complete unwillingness to uh, demand an immediate and permanent ceasefire. And it is creating immense danger for millions of Palestinians in Gaza, but also for Americans here at home. Yeah. And you cited in your letter uh, some of the sort of restatements of false information that have dehumanized Palestinians. That would include President Biden, who did yeah. repeat early on you know, some things that turned out not to check out um, mm -hmm. that we accused Palestinians of and accused Hamas of, um, but also just saying he didn't believe the numbers of Palestinian dead, which the U.N. believes. It, it, how did that feel just as a Palestinian American to hear the president say, I don't believe it? I mean, it's heartbreaking. It hurts. It is a dehumanizing thing to hear from the president of the United States, someone who you worked so hard to campaign for and elect and um, support his policies that, you know, your life is not valuable. Your identity means less than other people's identities. And it's okay that tens of thousands of people who look like you and who have similar backgrounds and heritage are dying and being massacred. And that hurts. Um, what was the reaction? What reaction did you get from Secretary Cardona when you handed him this letter? Secretary was extremely understanding. He was very supportive. You know, I think he always talks about putting faith and family first before work. And, um, you know, he was extremely empathetic. He cares about me. Um, and I appreciate that. I've gotten that type of support from across the administration, uh, from colleagues at the Department of Education, but also colleagues um, in other areas of the government who have been wanting to speak out and who have been interested in dissenting. Do you get the sense that, that there are a lot of other people in the Biden campaign and in the administration who feel the way you do, that are yeah. maybe not saying anything? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think a lot of people are saying something. I think that we've seen hundreds of State Department officials sign on to numerous dissent cables yeah. that were leaked. We've seen USAID officials. We've seen White House staff. We've seen interns. We've seen hundreds of uh, officials across the administration from dozens of agencies. This is a pretty commonly held position by a lot of the biggest supporters of the yeah. president. And the majority of American voters support a ceasefire, but the president's unwillingness to move on this policy is deafening and it hurts. How do you how do you square that? Because Biden really is the empathy guy, right? You, yeah. And empathy is kind of his superpower. It's the thing he's known for more than almost anything else. Can, how do you square for yourself and explain why he doesn't seem to 
be able to project or have that empathy when it comes to the Palestinian people? Why do you think that is? I don't know the answer to that, to be honest with you. I, I agree with you that the president has always been the empathetic person, the person who you can look up to and relate to and share emotions with. But when it comes to Palestinians, it seems like you know, we don't deserve the same type of empathy and humanization that other people do. And I think that's in part due to decades of dehumanization of Palestinians by our government officials, by our media. And it's extremely problematic. It undermines humanity for millions of people. And it allows for the undermining of uh, humanity by um people everywhere. You know, uh, you were the only Palestinian American in uh, the Department of Education, but you also were a campaign guy. You you worked on the campaign. Um, This is not the most important thing, electoral politics, but it kind of is because our democracy is at stake. What are you going to do in in November? I mean, do you have a, would you vote for Joe Biden? I think that's up to him. Um, You know, I did volunteer to support the campaign. I've supported the president for the last three years in every single thing I do in my professional life. And the reality is the president's in power. He is the one whose name is on the ballot and it's his policies. If he wants to earn my vote and the vote of millions of Americans who support peace and an end to violence, that's up to him. Yeah, I I think... Anyone, no matter how you feel about this issue, must respect somebody who is willing to take a stand. And taking a stand and walking away from your job is a pretty big deal. Tara Kabash, thank you very much for being here. Thank you so much, No respect. Thank you. Uh, and coming up, the Florida Surgeon General calls for a halt to COVID vaccines, while hospitals across the country are reinstating mask mandates amid a spike in new COVID cases. Dr. Vin Gupta joins me next to fill us in on the latest threats to our health. Back in a second. Have you all noticed that everybody seems to be sick lately? It's not just anecdotal. Respiratory illnesses and hospitalizations have been steadily rising over the past few weeks. So what is going on? We're here to tell us his friend of the show, Dr. Vin Gupta, critical care pulmonologist and MSNBC medical contributor. Dr. Gupta, I'm so glad that you were available to talk about this today. Why is everybody seem to be sick? Uh, well, Joy, you know, this is the first time, good evening, happy new year, that this is this is the first happy time uh, that really a, a, in the wake of the peak of the pandemic that we're dealing with three threats at once. This is compounding threats of COVID, flu and RSV all circulating right now at high levels, right after everybody's traveled at 30,000 feet or in some form of vehicle. Uh, so really this week after the holidays is when you're going to see that a lot of that transmission. And that's why we're expecting things to really peak middle to end of this month. So critical for people, especially if you're medically higher risk watching this right now or have a family that's high risk. If they're sick, get a diagnosis. Don't just assume things are going to go away by themselves. Right. Because the thing is, that, you know, a lot of people are sniffling, sneezing, coughing, like they're having like what seem like flu symptoms. And even me, you know, I was sniffing, sneezing, took a COVID test. No COVID, no COVID, no COVID. It's always like not COVID. So is it something else? Because it's right now the COVID vaccination rates, people getting their boosters are very low. Only 19 percent are uh, 18 plus are getting the, the COVID updates. Influenza shot, 44 percent. RSV shot, 17 percent. Is it one of these three things people are mostly sick with? 
Likely. There's a few other uh, more esoteric viruses that we don't often talk about. So that could be something else, but it's likely one of those three. I'm glad you raised this because this is the question that we often get. Well, gosh, what should I do? If my COVID at home test is negative, am I, am I all clear? Should I just take some over-the-counter medication? The answer is no, especially if you're medically higher risk. A lot of people, Joy, though, don't have immediate access to healthcare uh, because of the country that we live in and the difficulties in healthcare access. So go to test2treat.org, government-funded program, totally free, free telehealth services, and free treatment for COVID or flu if you're positive. For those out, if the, for moms out there that are expecting, uh, or if you're, again, over 60, have a conversation with your medical provider about new RSV preventatives. They can spare you a hospital visit, either for a young infant or for yourself, again, if you're older than 60. We're in a different era of threats, but also in a different era of solutions. I mean, the, during COVID, one of the nightmares was people's ex- extreme doubt about the vaccines and some people refusing to take them at all, including one Dr. Latipo, who is the Surgeon General of the state of Florida. He's now calling for all mRNA vaccines to be banned. Wow. Um, your thoughts on that? Well, you know, this is this is a, a gentleman here that I would ask everybody that's watching even more broadly, would you want somebody uh, like Dr. Latipo and everything that he said, would you trust him with your medical care or the care of your loved one? No, nope. I would have assumed the answer to many is probably no. He says a lot of these things, but would you ultimately trust him with direct clinical care? The answer probably is no, because a lot of what he says is not grounded in fact. He believed in hydroxychloroquine. Joy, you and I talked about this at the peak of it. He believed in ivermectin. Now he's saying things that are fundamentally untrue. There's no truth to what he's saying. He's putting, frankly, a large population of at-risk individuals in Florida at risk. Ignore it. What we really need to focus on here is the, is a clear-eyed approach to the next four weeks. We're seeing places like the Bay Area now enjoy really have ICU stress. The Southeast United States, places like Florida, ICU hospital-level stress. That's why we're talking about it. This is not just testing. This is actually what we're seeing in hospitals. And what should people do in order to not listen to people like him, but is there something we can do to sort of shore ourselves up? Because it does feel like either there's a new COVID strain out there or there's there's so many things out there. What should we be doing to be healthy? You know, I'd say preventatives work. Booster is still, it's not too late. Masking at 30,000 feet. And again, test to treat.org if you do not have durable access to healthcare. It's free telehealth services, free access to treatment. Yeah. It's always great to have you on. So helpful. Our friend, Dr. Vin Gupta. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Great to talk with you. And that is tonight's readout. 